Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Ladd, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 28th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, September 15th. Thanks to this podcast sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. Many of my podcast guests, I had the privilege of calling friends. And my guest today, Professor Brian Fitzpatrick, is a friend of longstanding. We've known each other for almost 25 years, ever since we met when I was an outgoing clerk and he was an incoming clerk to Judge Dermot O'Scanlan of the Ninth Circuit. I helped train Brian, and I sold him some furniture, too. Brian is a professor at Vanderbilt Law School, where he holds the Milton Underwood Chair in Free Enterprise. He joined the Vanderbilt faculty in 2007 after an impressive career that included clerkships for Judge O'Scanlan and the late Justice Antonin Scalia, time in private practice at Sidley Austin, and service on Capitol Hill as special counsel to Senator John Cornyn. Brian graduated from Notre Dame, summa cum laude, and Harvard Law School, first in his class. In our conversation, Brian and I covered what might be considered a greatest hits of topics for original jurisdiction. My readers and listeners are definitely interested in the business of law, so we tackled the juicy topic of attorney's fees. We then moved on to the hot-button issue of affirmative action, which Brian strongly opposes. And of course, we touched on free speech and ideological diversity, or the lack thereof, in American law schools. Brian has a front row seat to the battles going on right now in the legal academy. And he shares one story about something that happened at Vanderbilt Law earlier this year that I personally found both depressing and disturbing. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Brian Fitzpatrick. Brian, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, David. Always wonderful to see you. So we've known each other for years, but for listeners who are not as familiar with you, I'd like to begin with a little bit of background about my guest. I believe you grew up in New Mexico? Correct. Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And did you have any lawyers in the family? None. My father was a public school teacher and my mom was a homemaker. And I believe you majored in chemical engineering at Notre Dame. What led you to go to law school rather than to do something STEM-like? Two things, David. One was the money was a <laughs> lot better in the law. And number two was engineering was dreadfully boring. Really? And okay. Yeah, it was really boring. You know, having to worry about all these pieces of equipment that we use in these chemical manufacturing processes and how to optimize them. It was quite dull and the law seemed very exciting. People were arguing over the hot button issues of the day. And that seemed a lot more exciting than my heat transfer equipment that I was working <laughs> Did you think about going into something like patent law or anything like that? Yes, I did. I thought I would naturally become a patent lawyer. And then I came to realize that patent law is dreadfully boring as well. <laughs> and I actually tried to do some patent prosecution the summer before law school for a little patent law firm in Albuquerque. And God, it was terrible. So I quickly disabused myself of that notion. So when you went to Harvard Law School, it sounds like you fell in love with other areas of the law. 
Yes, I did. You know, I liked con law. I liked originalism, Justice Scalia. You know, he really excited a lot of us. But I liked the whole thing, frankly. Mm-hmm. I, I liked all my classes, all my professors. I just had a wonderful intellectual awakening in law school. It was very different from engineering. And I just, I, I couldn't have been more excited about it all. So let me ask you this. When you were in law school, did you feel the intellectual climate at Harvard was pretty respectful of different viewpoints? You've always been, I think, somewhat right of center, perhaps even more so back then. Did you feel it was a hospitable intellectual environment? You know, I will tell you, honestly, at the time, I did not feel it was very hospitable. But compared to today, (laughs) it was extremely hospitable. I mean, it's so much worse today than it was when I was a student. When I would talk in, I was, I was, very conservative. I like to think, David, I'm just as conservative today as I was oh, then. Okay. But I was very conservative, probably, you know, at the far right wing of my 550 person class. Very few were probably to the right of me. When I spoke in class, my classmates would hiss. <laughs> when they did the little annual skit that the students put on about the law school, they made a character for me called Brian Fitz Right Wing Nutball. Oh my my gosh. Oh, wow. That's hilarious. You know, they didn't make it easy on me, but gosh, you know, compared to today, I mean, my students sit in their seats quivering with fear. I taught a class the other day. It was complex litigation. We were talking about whether judges should consider race and gender when selecting the leadership lawyers for multi-district litigations. Mm. That's a very big push going on right now to diversify those leadership teams. And I was just trying to get out from my students the argument, just the argument that the race and gender of a lawyer will not affect how good the lawyer's legal research is, how strong their brief is, perhaps even how strong their argument might be in front of a judge. I was just trying to get that argument out and no student was willing to say those words. Wow. Interesting. No matter how much I pleaded with them, no (laughs) student was willing to say those things. Wow. Well, that is a sad commentary on the state of legal academia today. And I think perhaps we'll return to that. But Returning to your bio, after you graduated from Harvard Law School, you clerked for our former boss, Judge O'Scanlan, and then Justice Scalia. And how would you describe those clerkship experiences? Fantastic. Very different, but fantastic. I mean, you know, Justice Scalia needs no introduction. He was a brilliant man. He was larger than life. It was exciting to be near him every single day. It, It really was. He was always up to a thousand different exciting things. And he loved, debating with his law clerks. And it was just so fun. And I had a great time. Judge O'Scanlan was wonderful preparation for Justice Scalia. You know, Judge O'Scanlan, as you know, runs a very organized law office. I mean, it was very good training to clerk for Justice Scalia. I felt like he really, O'Scanlan whipped me into shape. (laughs) My writing got a lot better clerking for Judge O'Scanlan. And I was a much more organized lawyer by the time I left that clerkship. And so I could really hit the ground running with Justice Scalia. So take us now from your clerkships to the present. You did have some interesting experiences in between, but how did you make it from your clerkship with Justice Scalia to Vanderbilt Law? 
I was in private practice for a few years at Sidley Austin. I was an appellate lawyer there. Also had a great time there. You know, I, I didn't bill that many hours. It was back in those days. I don't think I billed more than 1,800 hours any of the years I was there. It was, wow. it was the good old days. If you didn't care about that paltry year-end bonus, at that time, the year-end bonus was crap. And if you didn't care about it, you could really have a wonderful wonderful time at the Well, you were firm. also getting your SCOTUS clerk bonus, so you were probably true. Like, whatever. But you know, back then, David, those bonuses were nothing compared to what they are now. I think we did an analysis of this, of the inflation rate versus the clerkship bonus inflation. Oh. And my bonus was very small, even after you adjust for inflation. Those things wow. have skyrocketed. So I was born too early. <laughs> uh, I was born too early. But yeah, so... I had a great time at the firm. I left the firm to work on Capitol Hill for, I think, something close to a year. My, my good friend, Jim Ho, who's now on the Fifth Circuit, was working for Senator John Cornyn from Texas. And Jim had to leave to go clerk on the Supreme Court for Justice Thomas. And he said, you know, when I'm gone, if there's a Supreme Court vacancy, will you come back and help Senator Cornyn with it? And, you know, as soon as he left, there was a Supreme Court vacancy. Sandra Day O'Connor had retired. And then shortly thereafter, Chief Justice Rehnquist passed away. And so I joined the senator's staff and, and helped him with those nominations. And that was great fun. You know, we, we went to meet the press and all those things, you know, those early Sunday morning trips with the senator. It was a lot of fun, too. I really enjoyed that. Then I did a fellowship at NYU, Olin Fellowship courtesy of the Federalist Society. And then I went on the teaching market and I ended up at the best school that would give me an offer. And that's how I, I got here to Vanderbilt. Excellent, excellent. So let's turn to now your scholarship. You are one of the nation's leading experts on attorney's fees. You also do some consulting work on the side in addition to your scholarship in that area. And you are a leading authority on how to calculate them. For lawyers who are not familiar with the topic, can you explain the circumstances under which fees need to be calculated? People might just think, well, this is what the lawyer charges. It's in the engagement or retention letter. What's the deal with this calculation? There are two circumstances, probably more than two, but two that I am intimately familiar with where judges, courts have to calculate attorney's fees rather than just leaving it to the clients and the lawyers to negotiate it all for themselves. So one context is class actions. In a class action case, the lawyer that brings the case will have an agreement with the representative plaintiff, but will not have any agreement with all of the absent class members. And so when the case is resolved, the lawyer has to ask the court to pay it from all of the payments that the absent class members are getting. And because there's no agreement, the court has to decide, okay, how much should the absent class members pay you for what you did for them? So that's one context. The other is fee shifting. You know, when plaintiffs prevail against certain defendants like the government, there's often a fee shifting statute that says the losing party, the government, will pay your fees back for you. And so the judges have to say, okay, how much in fees are reasonable for the government, the defendant, the losing party to reimburse you. Because, you know, 
you sometimes these lawyers, they just hand in these bills and they're very exaggerated. And so the courts want to make sure the hourly rate is reasonable. They want to make sure the number of hours is reasonable before they force the defendant to pay the bill. And you'll see this in bankruptcy, right, where people have to submit their bills and the court might slash them or something. That's true because the estate is being charged by the lawyers for the estate. And that's another situation where there's not kind of like a class action and kind of like the fee shifting situation. There's not a real client. Mm-hmm. And so the court kind of has to step in to make sure that these bills that are being submitted against the estate are reasonable. Okay. Okay. So this year, your scholarship on attorney's fees got judicial endorsements from two of the nation's most influential courts, the Delaware Chancery Court and the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. So congratulations on that. And your name is now enshrined in a prominent method for calculating attorney's fees, the Fitzpatrick Matrix. What is the Fitzpatrick Matrix? The Fitzpatrick Matrix, I didn't name it that day, but so I don't (laughs) want to be accused of tooting my own horn on this, but it was named that by the Justice Department, the Department of Justice, because the matrix was a project for the Department of Justice. In this second context that I mentioned, the fee-shifting context, the federal government doesn't want to fight out every single fee request over and over again when it loses litigation. It likes to have some kind of rules of thumb that will help it know when a fee request is reasonable. So for decades, the federal government has been using this thing called the Laffey Matrix to calculate whether hourly rates are reasonable in the litigation that is brought against it. And the Laffey Matrix was, it's decades old and The Department of Justice said this thing is so old, who knows whether the inflation adjustments are even corresponding to reality after so many decades. So they asked me to dig into the files in the District of D.C. docket and pull out any information I could find about what lawyers in D.C. were charging their real clients in complex litigation against the government or other complex litigation and to redo the matrix. And so I got one of my research assistants, Brooke Levy, one of my students, and we dug through those dockets. Really, she dug through the dockets. I (laughs) have to say I didn't do too much digging. And we pulled out the data. We did some regressions and we put it into a nice little matrix that now the federal government is saying, if you follow this matrix, we will not fight your fee request. Oh, wow. You said you had to get data from the situations where the rates are negotiated. How did you find that out? Yeah, so it's it's very good question, David. It's a very good question. So sometimes you can tell that the rates the lawyers put into the record are not negotiated rates because they're the same rates that the Laffey Matrix used. So those are rates we say, we can't trust those rates. That's just the lawyer saying they're going to charge whatever Laffey said. In other situations, we also had doubts that the rates were like real rates because there wouldn't necessarily be any indication that the lawyers 
were actually charging their clients those rates. You know, sometimes lawyers have these fantastical hourly rates, but they never actually charge a client those rates. So we were looking for situations where the lawyers had actually charged their clients those rates. And so like, let me give you an example of when this comes up, is discovery sanctions. You know, sometimes in a discovery sanction situation, the sanction will be you have to reimburse the other side for whatever they spent on their lawyers in responding to this invalid discovery request. So there, you know, the lawyer could come forward. This is the bill that I sent my client for this matter. And so there we felt like, okay, that's an actual negotiated transaction between client and lawyers. We can count Mm -hmm. those kind of things. So we tried to screen out the cases where we thought the lawyer hadn't really charged those rates to the client. But You know, it's an inexact science. We just had to do the best we could. We had to draw inferences. We don't know for sure. Okay. And certainly the matrix is not perfect, but I think it's better than the Laffey matrix, which is 40 years old. So should lawyers like the Fitzpatrick matrix better than the Laffey matrix? On average, are the fees allowed under your matrix more generous to lawyers than under the Laffey matrix? I don't know for sure, David. You know, we have had a couple of cases now where the Fitzpatrick matrix has been challenged. So some lawyers, apparently some of the time, don't like it. But both of the judges in the District of D.C. said the Fitzpatrick matrix is better than the Laffey matrix, no matter what its flaws. I will say this. There were a lot of choices that I had to make when I did my regressions to create the matrix. And every single time I had a choice, I erred on the side of higher rates. And my theory was part of the reason for this is the Department of Justice is trying to cut down on litigation over fees. So the more generous we can be to the plaintiffs, the less bitching there's going to be by the plaintiffs. And so I tried to err on the side of the plaintiffs at every opportunity. So I hope most of them will be happy with. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests. I know you're also a consultant to firms, including plaintiff side firms, on the reasonableness of fees. And in your book, I think you also are in favor of lawyers being fairly or well compensated for their work. In 2019, you published your well-received book, The Conservative Case for Class Actions. But it was also attacked in some conservative circles, including, I think, by people from the Chamber of Commerce. Can you share with us the thesis of your book in a nutshell? Yes, the conservative case for class actions, University of Chicago Press, 2019. If you want a signed copy, you can go to my website, David, <laughs> www.bryantfitzpatrick.com. The, the, the thesis is this. We need to enforce the law. No one's in favor of no law. No one's in favor of no enforcement. The question is, who should enforce the law? Should it be the government or should it be the private bar? And I think the private bar is better at enforcing the law against corporations than the government is. And I think that for all the reasons that conservatives like me 
think the private sector is better at doing things than the government sector as a general matter. The incentives are better. The resources are better. They're less biased in favor of campaign contributors and other political considerations. And there's a virtue to having a decentralized enforcement system as opposed to putting all of our eggs in one basket, one government actor, or even 50 government actors if you have states. And so I think all the reasons we like to privatize line up in favor of the private bar. And I think that carries over to class actions. I think the private bar is much more effective at holding corporations accountable when they break the law than the government is. And it's not just theory, but there's data. You look at when private lawyers go after securities fraud versus the government, they recover multiples of what the government recovers, even in the same cases. Same thing with antitrust, et cetera, et cetera. I I just think, you know, the proof is in the pudding and the private bar does a better job. And so if we want to enforce the law, we should do it the conservative way and the conservative way is the private way. That's the thesis of the book. Okay, and it makes sense to me to have these private attorneys general in a way pursuing corporate wrongdoing. But why is the Chamber of Commerce then opposed to your argument? The Chamber is not conservative, David. You know, I don't know why anyone thinks the Chamber is conservative. They're pro-business. Yeah, they're pro-themselves. They're pro-certain types of businesses. They're pro-big business. They're pro-incumbent businesses. They run to Washington, D.C. all the time to get regulations passed to keep out competition. They're at the public trough looking for government largesse constantly. The chamber is not a conservative organization, in my opinion. It is a pro-big business organization. Now, sometimes what's good for big businesses is good for conservative principles. Listen, I represented big businesses at Sidley. I love big businesses and what they've created for our country in terms of quality of life and wealth and the whole thing. But not everything that's good for big business is going to be good for the country and not going to be good for conservative principles. And class action lawsuits is one of those contexts. Let me ask you this, though, in terms of incentives and checks. What about these situations that folks like, say, Ted Frank complain about, where you have these class action settlements that look almost collusive, where the attorneys are getting this giant payday and the class members are getting coupons, or you have these, I don't even know how to pronounce it, that C-Y space P-R-E-S doctrine. Cypray. Cypray. Some random other entity is getting a benefit. Doesn't that belie your argument that class actions are efficient ways of securing consumer or individual welfare? Well, It only belies the argument, David, if cherry picking the worst case scenarios and not looking at the typical case is a right way to assess an argument. And I don't think it is. I don't think focusing on the outliers and ignoring the typical is the right way to assess the strength of my argument. So, of course, as with everything in life, there are (laughs) going to be some bad class action lawyers and some bad class action settlements. The question is, is that typical? And the answer is no. Coupon settlements, these things have been bandied about for decades now. There's hardly any coupon settlements left. I'm sure there's a few out there somewhere, but you know we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of class action settlements every single year in this country. And how many of them fall into this 
category of the entire thing goes to side prey or the class gets nothing but a worthless coupon. How many a year are mm-hmm. that? 10? 10 out of 500? I'll take those odds every single day <laughs> against the government. Do you think courts are actually getting better at policing the terms of these settlements? I feel that years ago, they were rubber stamps. Are they less rubber stampy today? I think they are. I don't have good data to prove that, but my anecdotal experience, if you will, is the courts are cracking down. And I must say, as hard a time as Ted Frank gives me about a lot of things, I'm a big fan of his. Hmm. And I think that he is probably more responsible for the greater scrutiny that judges are giving class action lawyers than any other force in the United States of America. He has single-handedly improved our system by putting the lawyers to the test. And I think that he's a force for good. I don't agree with arguments he makes sometimes. Sometimes I do agree with the arguments that he makes. But the point is we need someone who's going to hold the lawyers accountable. And he does a good job of doing that. And our courts are getting better at it because of him. And so I think he deserves a lot of credit. So, yes, I think things are getting better. The abuses are being identified and they're being stamped out with more speed than they used to be. So I agree with you on Ted. I think I called him the class action avenger when I wrote about him at Above the Law years ago. I think that people do have to be careful when they negotiate their settlements, knowing that Ted might pop out of the you know, greenery. Listen, and- I talk to these lawyers all the time, David, and we always say, well, what are we going to say if Ted Frank comes in? You know, <laughs> so he's definitely in the room, even when he's not in the room. Okay, fair enough. So before we move on from this topic, I have to ask your opinion on a burning question. Attorney's fees. How is that? Or even attorney fees. Is it attorney apostrophe S? Is it attorney's plural apostrophe? What's your preferred locution? You know, David, there was a a federal district court judge that wrote an entire opinion about this. Are you aware of this? Yes, pretty recently, I think, actually. In the past couple months. Yeah. And so I didn't know there was that many different ways to do it, to be honest with you. I've always done it attorneys, plural, apostrophe. But, you know, I didn't realize that there was so much disagreement about this. But that's how I've done it. Now, do I have any good reason for that? Not really. I haven't really thought about (laughs) it. Not nearly in the depth of that federal district court judge. But that's how I do it. How do you do it, David? I do it the same way, actually. I don't know why. I just think in many of these cases, given the state of complex litigation today, you have more than one lawyer. And so it seems logical to do it that way. And it is possessive. I guess you could say, well, attorney modifies fees or something. And I guess it does. But I again, I think of it as you know, I mean, I'm sure my listeners think of it that way. The money's coming to them. They're all excited about it. <laughs> this is why whenever I link to some mention of you and the calculation of fees and I look in Substack to see what the most clicked on links are, besides something involving a sex scandal or something, I think stuff about attorney's fees is clicked on at a very high rate. Interesting. So people like sex scandals and money. Yes, exactly. Okay. Shocker. And Yale Law School. What about Yale Law School? Oh, yes, that that's true. People love a good scandal. Well, speaking of, in terms of at least hot button issues and things that get clicks, this is a change of gears, but 
Let's talk about affirmative action. This does not seem like something that would be in your bailiwick, but you're constantly quoted in the news on it. And some people might say, well, stay in your lane. You're a civil procedure professor. Why are you dabbling in this issue that people might say is a civil rights issue or, or a constitutional law issue? Or, I mean, I know you teach con law too, but how did you become interested in affirmative action? You know, one of those hot button issues that I was drawn to when I was in college and that drew me away from chemical engineering was affirmative action. That probably motivated me more to go to law school than maybe even the money. (laughs) And I've always been quite offended by the practice, I have to be honest with you. And I think I trace it back to my time as a high school student watching the college admissions process unfold. You know, I went to one of these ritzy private high schools. You know, my family was quite poor, but, you know, I got into this ritzy high school and we took out some loans and it was quite eye-opening to see which of my classmates were admitted to Stanford and, and Harvard and places like that. And I think it really left a scar on me. And it, It's been something that I've just been very offended by ever since, to be honest with you. And some of my early papers before I became a law professor and a couple of papers in my early days after I became a law professor were about affirmative action. You know, I was one of the very first people to make this argument that things like the Texas 10% plan and things that I think the universities are going to turn to now, these race neutral efforts to generate racial diversity, that these things are unconstitutional. There's a lot of Supreme Court precedent when, you know, white supremacists try to use race neutral means to keep down black percentages. And the Supreme Court said, you can't evade the Equal Protection Clause that easily. And so I just say the shoe is on the other foot now. If affirmative, if racial preferences are unconstitutional, then trying to evade that with race neutral gerrymandering is going to be just as unconstitutional as well. So I was making that argument really before anybody. And now it's become relevant again. Yes, absolutely. But before we get to that, let me ask you, do you think that being on the record as against affirmative action complicated your academic job search if these were things you wrote about early? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, as a general matter, there's a lot of discrimination against conservatives in academia on the faculty hiring side. There's a lot. I mean, I just complain about it constantly. I cannot get my colleagues to seriously consider conservative candidates, no matter how much complaining I do. But whatever headwinds there are against conservatives become like hurricane strength if you are against racial preferences, against Mm -hmm. affirmative action. That's just like a third rail Mm -hmm. now in academia. And I'll just give you an example, David, of how much of a third rail it is. Last year, one of my former students, Cam Norris, he is one of the most successful graduates of Vanderbilt Law School ever. He clerked for the Supreme Court, Clarence Thomas, after Bill Pryor on the 11th Circuit, Then he joins this little litigation boutique and he argued a case in the Supreme Court a couple years ago in one 9-0 tax case. You know, he's young. He's he's probably 34 years old. And his firm gave him a Supreme Court case a couple years ago. He won at 9-0. And then they gave him the Harvard affirmative action argument 
for a young lawyer to get that argument in the U.S. Supreme Court, it's unheard of. We should have been sending out press releases touting one of our graduates was given that kind of trust. Mm -hmm. And instead, what happened is this. Not only did we not send a press release, but a colleague of mine, Jim Blumstein and I, we invited Cam to come to Vanderbilt Law School to do a moot court before his big Supreme Court argument. We've done that many times before for alums and non-alums, all kinds of lawyers. Jim and I would moot him along with some of our other colleagues. It'd be great fun for the students to watch one of you know, our alums preparing for an argument. And the law school prohibited my colleague Jim Blumstein and I from inviting Cam Norris onto campus for a moot court prohibited him from setting foot on his own campus to do a moot court. That's insane. I, uh, that's outrageous. I don't even know I, what I've was the argument given. The argument was Vanderbilt, although not a party to this litigation, filed an amicus brief on the side of Harvard, and we could not be using any university resources to be working against Vanderbilt's litigation position in this case. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It was just a moot, and it would have been a really interesting exercise, and I feel that hearing out different viewpoints is what education should be all about. And don't we want to show the students how real lawyers are preparing for big cases? Don't we want to send the message that if you work hard at Vanderbilt, you too can be in the Supreme Court arguing a case in 10 years? I mean, isn't this what we want to tell our students? No, Mm -hmm. because it's on the wrong side of the case. So we don't want to tell them that. We want to hide it from them. We want to pretend it's not going on. I still don't think Vanderbilt has said a single word about this case that Cam won. He won this case. Yes, exactly. And not a single word has been uttered by Vanderbilt Communications about that. Wow. Well, I can't say I'm surprised given what I have covered about these issues. But let me ask you this about where we go after the rulings, the case that Cam prevailed in and the other case as well. So Chief Justice Roberts famously wrote in his opinion, quote, Nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. And you memorably quipped to Reuters that you expected some schools to, quote, try to drive a truck through that little paragraph, close quote. Do you expect the schools to succeed at that? Probably. Really? To be honest with you, David, I do think they probably will succeed. It's going to be even harder now to prove that schools are using race than it was before. I mean, it was always hard at Harvard because, you know, they have a, like a black box process. You don't but know what they But they got the data. Doing. Consovoy McCarthy got yeah, the school. But that's hard. Mm-hmm, I mean, sure. they had to hire an expert. I mean, the expense and the difficulty is so hard. You know, it was much easier back before Gruder and Gratz when the schools just added 10 points if you were black or, or you know, that was so much easier <laughs> to prove back then. The more opaque the schools have to be, the more difficult it is going to be to prove that they're up to no good. So I I thought that was a terrible misfire by the chief to put that sentence in the opinion. But what was was the alternative? Let's say anything about that. There was no reason to say As he said, they lost. Who cares? 
because they were characterizing what schools could do. And he wanted to say, whoa, 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 you can't do indirectly what you can't do directly. Wasn't that an important thing to say? Yeah, that part, but not the part about the essay where he says, of course, you can talk about your race in your essay. And if something racial shows that you have more determination in your life because of a racial incident, the schools can consider that. That part should not have been put in there. He Mm. could put in the rest of it, but just not the part about, of course, race can be considered as part of an essay on some kind of life learning or some kind of personality characteristic. I I just think that was Mm -hmm. really stupid. And, (laughs) and, And so I do not know what he was thinking. He's a very smart person. So I don't know. Yes. What came over him? Where was the law clerk? What? Someone should have stopped that, David. Before we go to my speed round of four final questions, let me just push back on you a little bit about your point about the race-neutral alternatives. This is playing out right now because we have this litigation over the Thomas Jefferson School, this magnet school in Northern Virginia known for science and technology, but its graduates have done many other things. Helen Wong, the novelist who I interviewed on this podcast, she's a TJ grad. Anyway, They changed their admissions criteria, and it went to the Fourth Circuit. And the Fourth Circuit said, look, their new criteria for admission are race-neutral on their face. They focus on things like what school you went to, what elementary school you went to, your income, your family circumstances. They are not specifically race-tied. And the argument that some made was, well, they were trying to hurt Asians. And there was some, we can talk about the dispute in the factual record, but that's not really my point here. My question is, I think Judge Haytons, 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 Toby Haytons of the Fourth Circuit said that if you oppose the substitution of race-neutral alternatives for race-conscious admissions, aren't you just locking in the status quo? We can never change our admissions criteria because it's going to hurt or help some group or other, and therefore there's going to be this kind of disparate impact? Why can't we have things like the top 10% plan or other overhauls of admissions processes as long as they're race neutral? Otherwise, we can't change anything ever. David, we can have them as long as the reason why we're doing it is not to cause racial effects. So, If you want to do 10% plan because you want geographic diversity in your state, go right ahead. The problem is not just the effect is racial. That alone is not unconstitutional. The problem is when the purpose and the effect are racial, that it crosses the line over to unconstitutionality, according to the United States Supreme Court precedents. And I think that's a necessary rule because it's just too easy to get around facial restrictions alone. It's just too easy. You can always find something correlated with the thing that you really want to do and just do the correlated thing instead. And so we have to have some backstop Mm -hmm. against subterfuge. And that's Mm -hmm. the backstop. And so that Thomas Jefferson School program, to me, clearly violates these principles because the purpose seems quite clear from the record. The purpose is they wanted fewer Asians and more Blacks and Latinos. And they found a way, just like Texas, to accomplish that without putting race as a factor into the admissions formula. But the effect is the same and the purpose is the same. The purpose is to cap the number of Asians that we have at our institutions. And when people, though, David, talk about diversity, 
they're all about, well, we need more Blacks, we need more Latinos, we want to help people. But it's a zero-sum game, and you can't help people without hurting people. And if we talked about it that way, where we said, my purpose is to cap the number of Asians, I think it'd be very clear to everybody that this is discrimination and should be unconstitutional. So just one final question on this. Isn't it just then a matter of the decision makers not being so blatant? They can do a lot as long as they don't say, let's do something to those Asians? Yes, but the Supreme Court has said, you know, it's not just explicit statements of purpose that are in the record that you can consider. You can draw inferences. You can draw inferences from the timing of certain decisions. I mean, why were we not concerned about geographic diversity until after the Harvard and UNC cases came down? Why all of a sudden are we so interested in it? So inferences can be drawn like any other legal proof situation. The trier fact can draw inferences. You don't need someone to admit that they're doing wrong in order to hold them liable for something. So, you know, again, it's not going to be easy. If people are advised by good lawyers, they're going to have lots of ways to insulate what they're doing. But the principles are the same. And, you know, maybe if enough of these people do get sued successfully, it'll chill the others from trying to engage in these subterfuges. And on that note, I would like to give a shout out to something I mentioned in the newsletter. There was a lawsuit by an organization founded by Edward Bloom, who was behind the affirmative action cases against two law firms, Morrison and Forster and Perkins Coie. And one firm, MoFo, actually changed its program. So I think these lawsuits do perform a kind of checking effect. But turning to my final four questions, my first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law down in the trenches or law as a more abstract system of governance. Billable hours and the keeping of your time. It's terrible. One of my missions as a scholar has been to free lawyers from having to keep their time by getting rid of this lodestar cross-check in these class action cases. It's miserable to have to put down. You know, when I was in private practice, probably the same as you, David, we had 15-minute increments. But now some of these lawyers, like, (laughs) oh, even worse. Some of these lawyers, I guess they have six, maybe even three-minute increments. I mean, who can... Actually, you know what? I think maybe we had six minutes. I think I've uh, repressed these memories. But, (laughs) But, I mean, it's terrible. Having to account for every minute of your day like that, it's it's dehumanizing. Mm -hmm. And so I I hated it, and I hate the lawyers still have to do it. But maybe one day, at least we can free the class action lawyers of it. Okay. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a lawyer and law professor? That's a good question. And, you know, I don't know, honestly. I love what I do, David. I'm just uh, I know sure. you love dance. Would you like to be a dancer, a choreographer? No, I love looking at the dancers. I don't love doing it myself. So I, I'm very happy just to be an audience member. But, you know, maybe, I mean, I guess I... I could see myself maybe one day, I don't know, after my affirmative action comments, if it's possible, being a, you know, a federal judge. I think it'd be fun to be a federal district court judge. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I would learn so much. I would see so many new and interesting things as a district court judge. I think that'd be a lot of fun, but I'm very happy as a lawyer. You know, I, I just have absolutely no complaints. Maybe a newspaper editor. I love newspapers. And so maybe I would 
try to be a newspaper editor or something in retirement one day. You know, I have a little place okay. in the Berkshires, like like you have a little place in the Berkshires. They have a wonderful newspaper up there, the Berkshire Eagle. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes I wonder, maybe in retirement, I could work for them and fulfill my love for my newspapers that way. I literally, David, spend two hours every morning reading newspapers. Wow. Okay. My husband can hardly believe it. He just is <laughs> disgusted by me when he sees me doing this every morning. But I really do love the news. Well, it's great then. I guess I can understand why you you're often cooperating with media outlets when they need an expert analysis. So speaking of how we spend our time, my third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Not enough. Not enough. I, I just, I have trouble sleeping. I don't know why. I go to bed too late. There's too many things that are running through my head all the time. And so I wake up too early. So maybe six hours, I'd say. But I really okay. need a lot more, I feel like. I always feel tired. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. And my final question is, do you have any parting words of wisdom, such as either career advice or life advice for my listeners? Well, you know, I would say that, you know, you have to find something that you love to do. You know, even though I went to law school to make more money than I would as an engineer, I have turned down a lot of money by leaving private practice and becoming a professor. And I have no regrets about it because I think it was my father that told me the richest people in the world are those who love their jobs because you spend so much time every day at work. And if you love it, it really has more of an effect on your happiness than oodles and oodles of money would. And so I just think, you know, I encourage people don't stay at the law firm any longer than you than you really love it and go find something else to do once you've made enough money and if it's something that you're going to love more you know go do that well those words certainly resonate for me as someone who also left the world of large firms i love what i do especially talking to folks like you so thank you for joining me brian it was my pleasure david have a wonderful rest of the weekend and the same to you thanks so much to brian for joining me He's one of my favorite people to have a conversation or debate with, and I think this podcast episode shows why. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction, And thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now on or about Wednesday, October 4. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.